Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is the outstanding Charlie Javis, founder and CEO of Frank, a company that aims to make the application process for U.S. student loans faster and easier. Charlie founded the company in 2016 and has since reached almost 10 million households and raised over $25 million in equity from top industry investors like Apollo, Slow Ventures, Reach Capital, and Tusk Venture Partners. She's also a proud alum of our very own Wharton School. In this episode, we discuss Charlie's background and how her family history inspired her to pursue an entrepreneurial path, her experience dealing with financial aid at the University of Pennsylvania, and how it led Charlie to launch Frank, their approach to help fix the underserved student loan market, reaching 10 million households, building company culture, and why empathy is the most important trait she looks for in new hires, valuable advice for entrepreneurs, and what she considers to be her greatest achievement to date, and just a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with the amazing Charlie Javis. Charlie, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. And Welcome back home, I should say, because we do have yet another alum joining us uh, on the podcast, which is, of course, always extra exciting for us. How, how are you doing today, Charlie? I'm good. I cannot complain in beautiful Miami, so it's treating me well. Nice. And, and you were just telling me that you were ahead of the curve. You, it's not that you moved to Miami during the pandemic. I moved the day New York was shut down. So I guess that counts as during the pandemic, but one of the early ones, I would say. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, and we, we recently had the mayor of Miami on, on the show and, you know, similar background to yours, you know, sunny, beautiful Miami while we had a snowstorm outside in, in the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, it's very unfair. I will say that. <laughs> um, but it, it's great. I think a lot of New Yorkers have invaded Miami. I think it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful new scene that's budding, as I'm sure the, the mayor spoke all about. Yeah, he's, he's a great salesman. So, Charlie, let's hear your story, right? I, I, I know that you're an entrepreneur at heart. We'll love to hear how, how you got to your current role as, as founder and CEO of Frank. Yeah, well, I'd have to say I was always really just guided from the concept early on uh, that if you really do what you love, you'll figure out a way to make money and do well and do good in your career at the same time. And from a really early age, having grandparents that were Holocaust survivors, education was always kind of the first and most important thing in my family. And I've been lucky to have been given the opportunity to attend world-class institutions 
And if you have the ability to pay it forward, it's one of the kind of best things one can really do. And so that's kind of guided me all the way. But I would say sustainability was also front and center. When I was before high school, I started a soup kitchen at my local high school. And I think that kind of gave me the entrepreneurship bug of starting things after being told no 10,000 times, whether it's insurance issues or just our school doesn't do that, to a bunch of different reasons to finally succeeding. And now it's in its 11th or 12th year already, which is fantastic. But the biggest thing there is that the same people kept coming back year after year. And when you're thinking about kind of any version of change or upward mobility in someone's life, you want to create opportunities for them to be the ones serving and giving back and kind of moving up, but that wasn't happening. And so that was at the time where I think Mohammed Yunus won the Peace Prize and started reading a lot about microfinance and kind of the power of applying different types of business models and touching very different demographics that traditional financial institutions either was too expensive to reach, not where one could make money, and something where they just really had no data and no idea how to serve this demographic. And I guess in school, really fell in love with impact investing and built out a nonprofit. A lot of the word and social impact programs kind of reflect that, whether it's the Turner Impact Labs or some of the different curriculum and course content to the investment fund. It was just an amazing opportunity to kind of be able to study and learn the foundations and how all of this could apply. And graduating, I started the company basically almost out of school. I took the year to wrap up the nonprofit and student debt seemed to be the most important issue because even at a school that seemingly didn't necessarily need to make decisions based on the student debt they had. Students were taking their first job offer and kind of knew the clock was ticking that six months out, you would need to figure out how to start paying back the student debt. And the fact that you just spent thousands and anyway, way too much money on a degree, and then we're making decisions and then would quit a year in from whatever bank that you were unhappy with was mind-blowing because why is this one early decision when you're 18, don't really know what an APR is, don't really understand the impact of taking out this debt, don't know the career opportunities on the back end could influence such life decisions. And so having been through the financial aid process myself and have been really lucky to have kind of been awarded financial aid from Penn every step of the way was another barrier and more difficult. And I'm one of the lucky ones. Both my parents have master's degrees. They supported me throughout. They filled out most of the forms. That being said, it's completely crazy from needing to fill out paperwork to graduating in three years. And my brother was a year younger and finished with the M&T program. His last year or two years, my parents paid the same price to have one student attending Penn than to have two students attending Penn because of how financial aid works. And if we were totally oblivious to that, just imagine every other family out there or student out there that doesn't have the support, that doesn't have the resources and 
navigating is just really challenging for a purchase that people spend over $700 billion a year on. It's totally crazy that you don't have that. And so that's kind of how Frank was born. Our My thesis was if you approached finance the same way you did healthcare from a preventive lens, you could really start changing people's trajectories. And there really wasn't a holistic financial wellness platform made for students, whether it's traditional learners graduating out of high school or frontline employees and associates trying to gain new skills. There wasn't a level of literacy that enabled you to make the right decisions for yourselves. And people are really smart, but when they're not given information, it's really challenging to make good decisions. And that's reflected overall in the market where you have 78% of all borrowers that are not current on their student loan payments. It's a huge number. Don't only look at the delinquencies or basically the version of bankruptcy in student loans, which is non-existent, but is still categorized almost as you should assume write-off. But those paying on time and their minimum payment is 22%, which is really low. Um, So it's clearly unsustainable. Graduation rates are hovering at 50% at a national level for community colleges. It's around 30%. And so outcomes are just bad. And if we could help inform people earlier on, educate them, have them kind of see the entire playing field in front of them, help them with the process. We could really build a trusted financial relationship with millions of households from the very beginning where they're typically underserved and larger financial institutions just haven't established that trust and figured out how to reach them. And so that's kind of where Frank was born. We're now a platform that has kind of three core pillars. The first is around content and courses. And so we do everything from financial literacy to career pathways and college search and ROI to one of the largest online course marketplaces where courses start and totally transferable credit for $150. We have our money for college pillar, which taps into all the federal, state, and workforce development funds. We have all the scholarships and aid appeals, which is to help you get more aid from your school. And we're just launching an alternative to work study for flexible jobs for students. And then cash flow management, which our first is around kind of student debt repayment and optimization to enroll into income-driven plans. And our plans are to open kind of checking savings and buy now, pay later for this demographic as well. So it's basically your entire stack to introduce you to the financial kind of world and make sure you're fully served and fully educated and totally transparent as you're kind of transitioning from one kind of either no money in your bank and not making money because you're not employed to studying and gainfully employed or somebody that's looking to dramatically shift their salary expectations, end up in a different salary and life position after school. So that's what we do. We love it. The demographics are amazing. It's set out to help exactly who we wanted to, which is low to medium income households, 40% plus minorities, close to 50% first gen, 65% plus women, which is a female founder and CEO is really special because not a lot of financial brands really speak towards and to women and really resonate. So that's the short (laughs) answer of what we do and how I ended up here. But I can't say that 
it was planned. I think my mom thought I was nuts when I graduated and didn't take a hedge fund offer. And instead of, you know, saying I'm the CEO and founder of a company, basically it was like, I think she's unemployed, but she's figuring it out. You know, Bill Gates, who dropped out, who were both men who had like big garages to go work out of. But anyway, many funny stories along the way. So that's impressive. And we have a lot to unpack. And it's interesting you you mentioned Mohammed Yunus and you know that's a name that has come up quite a few times amongst founders and fintech investors, right? Let's talk you 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 mentioned your clients that uh, you're really reaching the clients that you would like, yeah. right? How are you getting to them? So, I guess in, one in terms of growth, we're reaching close to 5 million households this year. We're going to be doing probably 8 to 10 million households in the US. We reach them in a bunch of different ways, but most, meaning like close to 100% of our students last year came from non-paid channels. And it's really special because we have a direct-to-consumer kind of multi-channel approach. And then we also have an enterprise approach as well. So the original kind of direct-to-consumer, which is where we excelled at, really focused on being the primary resource for families. So instead of thinking about content as just an SEO farm, which most financial institutions do, it was really there to be a full resource thousands and thousands of guides and different areas to answer the most pressing financial questions a student might have or a parent might have from 529 plans all the way through student loan forgiveness and paying back your last payment 30 years later. Um, and so that's kind of where we excelled at. It's not an affiliates website, so it's not like a nerd wallet. It's truly unbranded and just organic, amazing quality content there. Then we also kind of have a huge element of word of mouth where students use us and then you start seeing hotspots around these area codes that just keep getting more dense with on a map. And then we also kind of have done a fantastic job um, when we did at the time use paid. There really aren't other services that help with financial aid other than the government. So there was a huge opportunity and huge white space to kind of go after that as well. So kind of different ways on the direct-to-consumer side, a very heavy investment early on and being the resource and kind of being the thought leader in the space. On the enterprise side, we now work with colleges, governments, employers, and financial institutions to be their college affordability center, basically. And so that helps us obviously acquire at no cost. They also happen to be our customers, but it's really, really wonderful symbiotic relationship because we offer an amazing benefit and perk as much as kind of help for them to think about building an authentic relationship with a different set of customers, which our product set speaks to. So those are kind of the different ways we grow and we're thankful to our partners and just, you know, excited to keep adding more as there's an emphasis on financial wellness and financial education overall. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you've mentioned this, right? But student debt is a problem that keeps ballooning, right? And then some analysts even argue that it could be driving the next credit crisis, right? Are you, are you seeing meaningful changes in the industry as well? Or are you, do you feel that you're also driving 
some of the much needed change? Um, so one, I would just like to know, I don't think it's the next quote unquote credit crisis. Like it's not a private sector issue. It's a government sector issue. And at this point, there's less than $10 billion or something around that that's originated privately. Most of it's on the refi side. So it doesn't hit housing the same way because it's just not an active securitization process. And you're just not going to feel it because if people don't pay back their debt, it's a government, it's not a fund. It's really just a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things when you have a hundred year outlook on this government budget. So that's for one. In terms of change, we're seeing a lot going on, especially with the new administration. I think have driven a lot more on the experience and digital side. So the investments and just awareness and knowledge around that is something we're proud to lead. We were the first to kind of help students with aid appeals. Students kind of now know a lot more about FAFSA, more students are applying and kind of know it's part of the process. There's still a lot of work to do, but we're definitely seeing a lot more financial education go up front and a lot more interest from partners on the enterprise side to incorporate this and make this mandatory. Basically, states are moving in that direction and making FAFSA completion a high school requirement. So there's a lot of moving pieces. But what we do know for sure is helping students and families better navigate uh, financial aid and more knowledgeable about their state of money and household finances, you know, increases college access and affordability. And that's the key there. And so college still very much, even if you have the valley that somehow thinks that college is useless, that's just really not the case. There's structural unemployment, there's general kind of ups in salaries. And so you still have a lot of value in a college education. Yeah, I always find it interesting that the some of the ardent, most ardent proponents of skipping university are extremely well educated with with multiple degrees themselves, right? So I, I mean, I'm with you. I, I clearly see a lot of value in education, right? Tell us a bit about your about the company culture. That's a topic that we love to talk about on this podcast and. You know, going from from zero to definitely a lot more than that is not easy. So maybe tell us about the the culture and how you approach building it. Yeah. So culture is obviously something that we care a lot about. And I think it's built on the basis, like from the very beginning of just finding really great people who are very empathetic, have empathy, want to kind of excel or motivated and build themselves. And so when you start hiring on on those traits, on motivation and just emotional, (laughs) emotional qualities, you end up casting a very wide net that's very diverse and inclusive, which is definitely part of our values and our mission and makes us who we are. And so we just did a, a fast company piece that kind of details the breakdown of our team, but very heavy in first gen of majority of women in the company and a lot of immigrants and diversity. And so that kind of makes up the fabric of who we are. And in terms of culture overall, I would say 
obviously very inclusive, but a lot of hard work. Um, you know, we do not have a Valley mentality and Google and, and those versions of perks. We look like a lot more on the, you know, private equity banking side in the sense that like, we all love our job. We all love to work. And if we're not going to do the work, you probably wouldn't fit in. And um, that's just who we are. And it doesn't mean that there isn't an element of play hard as well, but there's just an assumption of just extreme professionalism, high, fast communication, and making sure that you're always and can be available. That being said, there's definitely a lot of boundaries that we draw because one of the things that I personally did not like as the New York tech scene was budding was just this level of kind of people in WeWorks and drinking and hosting events and different elements, which could make people feel pretty uncomfortable and create scenarios that were just not needed in the workplace. And so we care a lot about when we throw events, especially for parents, because we do have a lot of people who have kids. We don't want to exclude them. And so we throw them within work hours. We will not have alcohol in the office and we don't pay for it usually at work events because there are lots of people and my family included that have had kind of issues with addiction. And so it's just having an emotional awareness to what people could be struggling with to make sure that it's an inviting and accessible workplace and no barriers or boundaries should or could be crossed because we're not inviting that within the workplace at any point in time. So I think that's obviously really important too. And I think it's a culture that recognizes hard work and we promote people really fast if they're doing a great job. And so we're super excited to promote internally. And I think it motivates the team to just try their best and bring their A game because they know that you're recognized for your work, not your age or whatever ethnicity you are, where you come from and you know, you're paid accordingly. And so that is very important to us as well. How big is the company in terms of people today? So we're about 20, 25 people. Very nice. Very nice. And so as you continue to scale and, and you have been scaling in the last few years, what would you say have been your biggest challenges? Right, Because it's, it's not an easy journey. Yes. I think in the very beginning, the hardest part was finding and still finding communication styles that work for you and your team, right? As an entrepreneur, you're always going to be on the optimistic side, especially when you just start out and haven't, I would say, been, I don't know, slapped, but um, <laughs> the equivalent of just what experience brings. And so, you know, you get excited when meetings go really well and, and your highs are high, your lows are low, and you might want to communicate that to the team. But that typically doesn't really help to have that level of open communication style because a lot of people are just not used to the ups and downs and roller coasters of what startup life can be. And so finding a communication style that works, that's honest, that's transparent to the extent that it's helpful to employees um, has been, you know, will consistently improve, but probably one of the hardest challenges earliest building the company. Other challenges, I would say, you know, it's a very competitive field. And when you're competing against people who have 10 times more budget than you, it's always fun to work magic in a budget constrained environment. 
So that's just a challenge we rise to the occasion for, but it's not unlimited budgets like I think my brother and what he's always experienced. And so it's just a, a different pace and a different challenge. And you kind of wake up every week going to war. So that's generally just you have to be within that mental mind frame and realize, you know, it's an extra long Ironman marathon that you're really building and running. And what other challenge? I think in the other challenge that we had earlier on was at the very beginning, not many companies were focused on this market, especially in fintech. There was very little data as to how valuable these customers could be. And so when you have a demographic that's just so misunderstood and underserved, and you are trying to solve for their problems and the investor base is the complete opposite of the people that you're trying to serve and building products for, there is a level of disconnect. And so in the beginning, it definitely made fundraising a lot more challenging compared to fintech startups focused on the super prime customers and the Ivy League plus and MBA world of kind of the student market. Yeah, you you mentioned transparency. One of the entrepreneurs that I admire the most and who's actually coming on the podcast very soon is Fabrice Grinda. And he talks about how he's always very transparent, except for when it comes to the financial situation of the company, because that can demoralize employees. And that's connected to fundraising that you just mentioned, right? So tell us about the fundraising story, because that comes with its own set of, of hoops to jump through. Yeah, I mean, we've now raised close to $25 million. And, you know, in 2017, we were probably the largest round that was led by a female CEO. And now that's changing, which is awesome. But it's always a different challenge at a different point. The very early seed round was not many people believed that we could scale because why would any customer, any student, any family give us tax information? We were just a startup and that information was way too sensitive and it's just so expensive to get. So obviously we then proved them wrong, but like trying to convince people who didn't believe or couldn't see how we would go to market, that obviously is is challenging at that point in time. The A was, I think, when you're in New York raising around consumer and your strategy is aggregate users, aggregate users, build value, and then monetize, New York is not as open and welcoming to that strategy. And so when you're raising an A without revenue, that you know is its own conversation piece and challenge. And then I would say when we, those were kind of the two primary rounds, and then we took in a strategic and that was opportunistic and kind of preemptive. So that was nice. And, you know, every stage has different questions and different scrutiny. There's also market environment. Now you're seeing valuations soar and be completely nuts. But at the same time, on the private market side, you're not seeing valuations that would reflect that. So unless you're going public via SPAC or public, Overall, um, the private market transactions just aren't at that level, even if ventures raising at that level, which is interesting. So we'll see how that disconnect gets solved over time. Yeah, certainly an interesting environment for fundraising now. How about the next few years? So you've been going at it for over half a decade, and it definitely feels like you're just getting started in terms of you know the market size is so big that I'm sure the company can become several multiples of what it is today. What would be a, 
a great outcome if you and I chat again in years. Yeah, I mean, we want to be the primary resource for low to medium income households. And I always, when we started the company, it was how do we become the Walmart of financial services? Funny enough, Walmart is now getting into fintech, which is awesome, (laughs) and announced that a couple of weeks ago or maybe months ago at this point. And that is our North Star. We want to find a way to fairly serve and financial services to the underserved. And we believe that we have the resources and the team to do that and have been really lucky with our backers um, that they just keep investing and, and growing the company. And we're lucky to be able to hit such a, a large amount and serve such a large amount of families on a lean team, which has you know enabled us to kind of grow and scale and do so responsibly and sustainably at the same time. So Charlie, this whole episode is clearly a, a class on entrepreneurship, right? But if you had to boil it down, you know, a few lessons for aspiring entrepreneurs who are tuning in, what would you recommend for people who are just getting started? Don't do it. And if you still <laughs> feel like doing it, then tell yourself don't do it. And if you really like wake up three months later and are like, this is the only thing I want to do with my life, then like maybe do it. But I guess that's the first one. And the second one would probably be like, don't be patient. I think a lot of people wait to kind of build their careers and stacks. And, you know, a lot of my classmates do that and you do two years or four years and then go to business school and then, you know, either start a company and then go back. And it's kind of just adding these layers of degrees and credentials. And I would say if you know where you want to go and have the opportunity to do it as soon as possible, then you should take that opportunity. And that's kind of what I've always kind of tried to do and done. And I think it's been really awesome to see and have been really grateful for the opportunity and and just risk very early on in a career where it doesn't necessarily matter. Your, Your fall is a lot less um, painful when you fall from one year than if you fall from 10 years or 20 years out. And then the, the other thing I would say is when you're building a company, you should really think about the people that you're bringing in, whether it's investors or teams, because at the end of the day, um, the people are what motivate you to get up every day and do what you do. Obviously, your customers do, but I think it was Danny Myers who always said, Customers come second, my employees and people come first. And I think if you take that mentality to building a company, you'll realize very fast what makes you get up every day, especially if you're in tech and your customers are your frontline. But as a CEO, I do support and will speak to people every day, but it's not the level of interaction that you have to repeatedly do with longer term relationships. And if you don't like the people you work with, there's you might as well just go work for another company. There's no point starting it yourself. And so just having that agency and selecting your team and being able to move and change and, and do that as you see fit as a CEO is really important. Yeah, I think uh, I'm pretty sure I've heard Richard Branson say the same thing, right? Customers come second, employees first. And so, Charlie, you uh, are clearly the kind of alum that I think we should have. We should have even more of. You know, super impressed by everything you're you're building and doing. You've been on Forbes 30 under 30, Cranes 40 under 40, 
you're definitely named as one of the most creative minds in the industry. But from your point of view, what do you consider your biggest achievement? That's a really fantastic question. I think, <laughs> I think the greatest achievement just comes from being able to meet, like my happiest moments are being able to like meet people on the street in an Uber at a Starbucks and they're using your product and they're telling you how life-changing it is. And that's just really special and that will never get old. And so it might not be your greatest uh, achievement of all time from a quantifiable perspective, but just being able to say that, you know, one of our earliest students became an intern and now she's graduating at one of the top jobs at, at Johnson & Johnson and contributed to packaging for the COVID vaccine. Um, that's just amazing. And, you know, first-gen student could have never afforded college without us. And so those are the outcomes that just make you really, really proud and thankful that your investors give you the opportunity to do what you do every day and your team's there with you to keep you going in the highs and the lows. So I think that's kind of the, the greatest thing so far is building products people love that truly impact and change the trajectories of lives, which is really cool. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, Charlie, can I thank you enough for joining us and congratulations for all the success. No doubt we'll be seeing a lot more to come from you and, and from Frank. Uh, and do continue to uh, to stop by campus once uh, once COVID is over. I will definitely be coming back to Philly. I miss Philly food more than the <laughs> campus. That's <laughs> <laughs> it. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 